Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founder of the podcast. I'd like to introduce Dr. Gregory DeFelice from the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Dr. DeFelice serves as an associate attending in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. Dr. DeFelice was the lead author on a paper titled Clinical Outcomes of Arthroscopic Primary Repair of Proximal Anterior Cruciate Ligament Tears Are Maintained at Midterm Follow-Up, which was published in the April 2018 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-author was Yella Vonderlist. Welcome, Greg, and thanks for joining me. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Greg, let's kick off this conversation on what many consider to be a somewhat controversial topic with your perspective on ACL repairs in general. You've certainly led the resurgence in this area of practice uh, and rejuvenated the discussion on ACL repairs. Can you set the stage for our listeners with your approach to the ACL injured athlete and where and when surgery and ACL repair in particular fits into your clinical practice? Sure, I'm happy to. So ACL repair really I look at as just a tool that's in my toolbox to treat people. And I consider, you know, the athletes that we work on really in, in this day and age includes everyone from teenagers to uh, seniors who remain active doing an amazing amount of, of sport. You know, the way I was trained and the way uh, most people are trained over the past three decades was that um, ACL injury really leads you to a binary choice is either you have surgery to try and regain stability of your knee, or you treat it conservatively and see if you can cope with without having your ACL. And and really, uh, I always felt that this didn't give enough options to take care of folks. So uh, there had to be a middle ground, and and that's what ACL repair has provided for me is a, a middle ground where I can use a smaller surgery to try and take some patients, uh, give them more stability to their knee without having to go to the reconstructive option, which is a huge investment in uh, time and uh, morbidity for the patient. Great. Thanks, Greg. As we all know, the approach to ACL tear management with ACL primary repair was described by some of the giants in our field, such as Drs. O'Donohue, Warren, Leisholm, and one of my mentors, John Fagan. This was abandoned due to the deterioration of results at their midterm follow-up of five years, and so began this shift towards primary reconstruction, which is now the standard of care. You described several factors that you believe contributed to these prior results. Can you go into this a little bit for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, um, they always say that we stand on the shoulders of giants, and that's absolutely true. All the names and then some had the right idea back in the 70s and 80s, but it was just the wrong execution. Um, Back then, they did the surgery through uh, a long arthrotomy. It was a long and arduous surgery, and they tried to stitch all of the ACL tears back, and they did it in the acute window in the first week or two. Sometimes the surgery didn't give them the most confidence as to the strength of the repair, and so all of the patients were put in a cast for anywhere from one to two months. So this is one of those those times when the cure was worse than the problem. Fagan's original paper looked at the two-year results and and were encouraging the five-year results deteriorated at at Hospital for Special Surgery with Marshall and Warren. uh, The same thing happened and all around the world similar reports uh, were put out. 
But the thing that they didn't do back then was they didn't differentiate between the different tear types. They were repairing mid-substance tears. They were repairing proximal tears. And when the data came out and it looked, you know, 50-50 as far as outcomes goes, they didn't really pick up on the fact that the 50% that healed were the 50% that were most likely torn off the bone. In the early to mid-90s, there was a few papers, maybe four or five papers, some from Europe, that focused specifically on proximal tears. So people were starting to realize that it was the tears that were avulsed off the bone that had a better chance. But at that point, kind of worldwide uh, surgical opinion was is that it wasn't worth it and they kind of moved on to reconstruction and it just kind of faded away. So ACL repair, when it was done through an open approach, uh, through an orthrotomy, uh, stitching it primarily in the acute setting with a cast follow-up, uh, it was just abandoned. And then the conversation about repairing the ACL really fell silent and it's been several generations of orthopedic surgeons that have been taught that the ACL can't heal, um, including myself. I was taught that the ACL can't heal, and that's why we do a reconstruction. But the question that I always, uh, always kind of dug into me was, if the ACL can't heal, how come 50% of the people did really well? And in fact, several of the surgeons uh, at Hospital for Special Surgery who I've spoken with said, and they tell me that, oh yeah, I had an ACL reconstruction 35 years ago and uh, my knee's been great and I never thought about it since. So uh, many of the surgeons that I've spoken to about their experience with those, that old open surgery told me that um, it was unpredictable, it was very arduous for the patient to go through and the surgery was difficult, uh, but when it worked, it worked amazingly well. And, but it was abandoned. And so I think what they did was they threw the baby out with the bathwater. They had decent results if you only picked the right types of tears. In other words, it worked, the ACL was repairable when it was, there was a repairable tear. And uh, I wrote another systematic review looking at the older literature uh, from 1950 to 2000, I think it was. And when we split the literature between studies that were done on mixed tear types, and then there was a, that group of papers that was only done on proximal tear types, what you found was that there was statistically better results with open repair when it was solely done on proximal tears. So it's an interesting uh, idea that we probably had our hands on the, the right idea, it just that we didn't, we didn't decipher the data appropriately, and so we just moved on, and, and ace, the, the evolution of ACL surgery just kind of moved towards an all reconstructive approach. I think this is exciting as a clinician who was trained with similar philosophy. It sounds like you were, uh, I agree. I was told ACLs can't heal. And like you said, you know, I was kind of taught the rule of thirds, a third of people, you know, who have an ACL tear, get a reconstruction, a third don't, but they can cope with it. And a third never probably needed it in the first place. Cause maybe they don't even do anything that requires cutting and pivoting. So it sounds to me, you know, reading your papers and also now having this chance to discuss with you in person, it sounds like you're trying to address the failures in the past by improving upon both patient selection and surgical technique. I think we'll talk about technique in a minute here, but going over the selection, you've said you carefully selected your patients for this cohort 
Uh, and in fact, you found only about 7% of the ACL tears were amenable to repair. Can you explain to us a little bit about how you assess the ACL for repairability? Sure, absolutely. You know, that, that's the, uh, it, listen, the 7% was back in the beginning when I first started. And as you can imagine, uh, you know, when you go out there and you're trying to do something new, you're very, very cautious. So I would only do this procedure on patients who had a perfectly intact ACL that was avulsed right off the bone. And with the modern day advances, including uh, most importantly MRI, we can see preoperatively whether or not we've got uh, tissue that's in continuity and is merely detached from the bone proximally. Again, with my research group, we've published a bunch of papers on this, including an MR classification system and also how often when we see a type 1 tear, which is within 10% of, of the length of the ACL close to the femur, how often when we see a type 1 tear, how often I was able to repair it. So the 7% number from that study was the very, very beginning. Those were the first 11 patients that I did. And the first one was done in 2008. That was 11 years ago. So I started very cautiously. I would only do absolutely perfect tears that were right off the bone because I was just evolving the technique and, uh, and really kind of seeing how it was going to work out. And as time went on and I got better and better at the technique and more and more comfortable with the outcomes of the patients, the volume has increased uh, dramatically. So the 7% that uh, were included in this study in my current practice, I'm able to repair at least 50% of the patients that present to me with ACL tears. Now you have to take that with a grain of salt because people find me for this procedure. So that isn't a true number that anyone can expect in their practice. Uh, it really depends on the type of practice you have. There tend to be more avulsion type tears if you, if you see a lot of skiers. And if you see patients acutely, you have a better chance of repairing some of these. In our MRI study, uh, we showed that 16% of the tears out of 350 MRIs on acute ACL tears were type 1 tears that were right up next to the wall that were the best kind for repair. And another uh, 20 or so percent of the patients were a type 2 tear that were within 25% of the wall that you can probably repair about half of those. So my indications are really uh, focused on care type and tissue quality, and I try and focus in on avulsion type tears with type 1 or 2 tears, with, and then w once you get in there in surgery, the patient has uh, excellent tissue quality that will hold the repair stitches nice, nicely so that they don't rip out. I think that's a really neat discussion. I like hearing your perspective on the description of your practice itself. And I think you're right. Your population will probably be skewed a little bit now that you've become known for this. So you may have a higher percentage of patients who are even uh, eligible for having this done just based on, you know, you being established as somebody who knows how to do this and is versed in it. I'm always interested in hearing from clinicians about how they counsel their patients can you talk to us a little bit about how you discuss this procedure with the patient preoperatively to prepare them for the procedure and also what kinds of reasonable expectations you give them? Uh, sure. So uh, I've got quite a bit more experience under my belt since this cohort of 11 has passed through. Uh, now I've done over 250 repairs. Uh, we've published uh, another paper 
with the outcomes of the first 58 patients, and we've started presenting data on the first 90 patients. So I can counsel the patients if, if we're able to choose them and really focus only on the proximal tears, uh, we've been running at, at around 90% uh, successful outcomes. We've had about maybe 10 to 12% of the patients have a re-injury at some point. I don't really call it a failure of the repair because uh, we've really had no one fail within the first three months. Everyone who's failed was anywhere from three months to four years out and uh, where they had a re-injury. And, you know, some of these re-injuries are pretty impressive falls and things like that. So I'm not sure that it truly incriminates uh, the procedure. Uh, what I do is when the patient comes to see me, quite a number of them are uh, focused on ACL repair because they've heard about it. And my answer to everyone is the same. I really don't know if I'll be able to repair your ACL until I get into the surgery and actually look inside of your knee. I can tell whether or not I'm going to have a good chance or a mediocre chance, depending on what your MRI looks like. But ultimately, this is an intraoperative decision. And so uh, I have a three-pronged approach to my ACL surgeries. Uh, I will repair it if I can. Generally, I'll repair it and augment it if I need to, and I'll only reconstruct it if I have to. So that's kind of the, the general discussion that I have with, with folks uh, about my approach, is that it's an intraoperative decision. We have a three-pronged attack. I tried my best to save as much tissue as possible, even if I can't repair the whole thing. Uh, I'll, I'll add a graft to it and repair what I can, trying to save some of the proprioception and blood supply, and I'll only use a, a reconstruction uh, as a last resort. Interesting you bring up the idea of the suture augmentation. Uh, I had the chance to discuss with one of your co-authors at the ANA meeting about the technique paper that you all published in the Arthroscopy Techniques Journal in October 2017. and what is your intraoperative decision making then between the repair uh, versus repair with suture augmentation? Um, well, uh, at this point in the game, I've gone to suture augmentation for every repair. Uh, we published a, uh, the follow-up on the first 58 patients, and that was uh, this past January in, in Kista. And what we showed was it was interesting because it, it broke out that the first 28 patients had suture repair with no suture augmentation, and then the second 28 patients had the suture augmentation. And what we found, there was no significant difference in, out, in failure rates because the numbers weren't big enough, but we found also that the suture augmentation really didn't have any negative side effects. So what I've come to uh, adopt as my practice is when I repair it, I add the suture augmentation as a kind of like a seatbelt that backs up the ACL and uh, will protect it while it's healing. And then generally it slowly loosens up over time and just scars into the ACL, kind of like uh, those sutures scar into the rotator cuff when we, when we uh, do a rotator cuff repair. In fact, I call my ACL repair the rotator cuff repair of the knee because it's a very similar procedure where you grab the tissues with locking sutures and then anchor it back up to the wall with uh, suture anchors. So currently what I'll do is add a, a suture augmentation that runs from 
my anteromedial suture anchor down the front of the ACL and exits down on the tibia where I'll anchor it down to the tibia with another suture anchor. That brings up another point uh, that uh, I think is very helpful and comforting for people when they, tr when, when they start doing ACL repair is that many people ask me, why would you tension the ACL repair at 90 degrees uh, with the knee at 90 when we do our tensioning with the knee closer to full extension when we do an ACL reconstruction? And one of my answers, plain and simple, is because it's very, very difficult to, to tension the ACL with the knee in extension with my technique. So what I do is tension the biologic tissue back up to the wall with the knee at 90, and then I tension the suture augmentation with the knee out straight. And I've found that to work very well. I haven't really found any problems with this surgery when I tension the ACL repair with the knee flex, uh, contrary to what most folks have asked me. You read my mind with the question about the tensioning. That's one that I had for you. But your comments also sparked a follow-on question regarding your intraoperative EUA after your repair is done. What are you doing after your repair when you take the knee into a position where you can examine it with a Lachman after the repair and it doesn't feel solid to you? Is there any ability to retension this or what's your intraoperative approach to that situation? Um, you know, that's a good question. And in fact, I'm working, I'm working on that, uh, on some devices to solve that right now, uh, on adjustable loops and things like that. Uh, so, uh, stay tuned. That'll probably be coming out uh, sometime in the near future. But to be honest with you, uh, I haven't really seen that problem a lot where I tension it and it still feels loose. If you've got good tissue and you've got a good grab of it and you pull it up nice and tight, the Lachman instantaneously disappears. The big question is whether that stays, right? So, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the big question. And one of the things that people ask me a lot about is uh, KT-1000 data and things uh, like that. And with this cohort of 11 that we're reporting the five-year results on, we didn't report the KT-1000 data, but we did report the KT-1000 data on that same group at the two-year follow-up. And then we reported physical exam findings on the same group at the five-year because it hadn't really changed. And the point of the follow-up is that we, we got to get started somewhere, right? I mean, we're starting this. This was one of the this was the first article with midterm follow-ups, and and the previous one was the first article with two-year follow-ups on a modern-day selective arthroscopic approach to ACL tears. And uh, it was a little older cohort, and it was retrospective, and there's all these things that, that surgeons throw darts at. But the take-home point is simple, is that it works. And I'm not saying that it works better than reconstruction. I'm not saying that um, it's going to replace reconstruction. All I'm saying is that exactly what we, we talked about in the paper is that, you know, maybe we missed the boat. Maybe there is a group of people that, uh, you know, aside from the rule of thirds, maybe there's a group that we can sneak in there, do a very small surgery, and get a stable knee without having to do grafts and tunnels and put the patient through that morbidity. And, and that's the one thing that all of the counter arguments and all of the, the editorials that have been written and all of the, the pointed, somewhat angry questions that have been thrown at me at different meetings, they, they fail to appreciate is that 
it's not just that it's not that I'm saying that this is better than reconstruction. I'm saying that it may be as good in certain cases, but at a fraction of the morbidity. None of our outcome measures take into account the morbidity of the procedure. And if you do a lot of ACL reconstructions, you know that patients struggle with the recovery from this surgery. It's not easy and not everybody does well. And if we can take a small group, in my practice, it's a big group. If you can take them off the table, give them a small surgery and have 85 to 90% good to excellent outcomes with a surgery that's a fraction of the morbidity of a reconstruction, to me, that's not a bad thing. And it's certainly something that we should be discussing more, right? And, and, and that's, that was really my approach in the beginning is that all of my research was focused to start the, the discussion about ACL repair using a modern day selective approach. So maybe we could all start discussing this and we can hone the indications, we can hone the techniques and we can, we, we can make it so it's a really well-developed tool that we can use in our treatment algorithm for ACL injured patients. Well, I certainly applaud you for basically putting yourself out there and getting this going just to reinitiate the discussion, if nothing else. You know, I had a question for you about getting started on doing these. You may have some listeners who have an, you know, a sparked interest now, and obviously you're the most experienced guy out there doing this. You said you've done over 250 of these now. What's your experience with the learning curve? Obviously, you've been able to navigate the waters, uh, test things out, see what worked and what didn't. What do you think is, or what is your uh, perception on the learning curve? How should people get into doing this rather than just starting? Well, look, I think um, there was a number of things that led me to this, right? Uh, first, first and foremost is that, um, you know, I trained at the hospital for special surgery uh, with uh, some amazing uh, mentors. I was uh, uh, taught how to do arthroscopic uh, rotator cuff repair surgery uh, by some of the greats. And so I was very uh, comfortable and facile with the stitching, the self-retrieving stitchers and passing of the sutures and suture management. Um, so if you do shoulder work and knee work, you'll find it's quite a bit easier than if you, if you don't do the shoulder stuff. I certainly recommend that people get in the lab and, and try these things and get used to working on the ACL because it's a different approach angle and things like that uh, than compared to the rotator cuff. Another thing that's, uh, that's really helpful is that uh, we put out uh, quite a number of, of technique articles on uh, your sister journal, Arthroscopy Techniques, so you can watch great videos and kind of get a feel for how I go about doing it. There's two, there's two approaches uh, to doing these arthroscopic ACL primary repairs. There's my suture anchor-based approach, and then there's the European um, approach that, that puts drill holes through the bone and puts it up to a button. That's a little more like the classic way of doing it, where they made drill holes and tied it over the bone. Uh, but using that European technique, they use a button and then put the suture augmentation off the button. So whichever way you're more comfortable and whichever way you believe uh, is better uh, is fine in my book. My argument is not to sit here and tell you my way is the best way. My argument is simply to try and open people's minds that maybe there is a role for ACL repair 
and you can figure out however you want to do it. This, this particular way works well for me, and I'll keep sharing my results, but uh, there may be a better way of doing it that other people come up with over time. So certainly, uh, you know, watching the technique, uh, reading about it, and then practicing in cadaver labs uh, to, to kind of get the steps down. But then the one thing that you really have to do to cha is change your workflow. So instead of taking the graft first, you should get in the habit of putting the scope in first and having a look at the ACL and get a feel for how many of these things might be repairable. I guarantee you there's one time when you're not going to repair it, and that's when you have the graft sitting in your hand. And so um, if we change our workflow, because a lot of people have gotten into the habit of uh, taking the graft first and so we can be prepared at the back table while the intraarticular work is done. If we can change that workflow to put the scope in first and have a quick look at the ACL to just kind of see what type of tear pattern you have and what the tissue quality is like, pretty soon you're going to convince yourself there's a couple that you can repair. So that's how I think people should get started. Yeah, I think those are great suggestions. And like you said, anytime we have a new uh, technique out there, it's obviously best to become facile with it and practice it outside of the operating room before trying to work it into your practice. Um, all right, let me put you on the spot here. Uh, I've got a burning question I've been dying to ask you. Um, in all of your experience and all of your practice, let's, let's have a hypothetical where your son or daughter is a high school athlete, competitive enough to be competing for a scholarship to college, and they tear their ACL. Are you comfortable enough with this procedure at this point that you'd have your child have an ACL repair vice a reconstruction? Um, well, there's an, I can answer that very, uh, there's a lot to talk about there, right? Because um, uh, I'm very open about uh, my failure rate and I'm very open about um, the risks and benefits for folks, right? Um, I, as I mentioned a little earlier, so far, if you look at the, the whole group, it's running at about 10 to 12%. But if you split that group into 30 and up and 21 and below, the 30 and ups are running at about 6%, and the 21 and belows uh, are probably closer to 20%, maybe even a little bit higher. Uh, and so there was a recently a paper out by uh, Albright out of Colorado who looked at a very, very young cohort. It was a group of, I think it was about 21 patients, average age 14, if I recall correctly. And he showed that by three years out, 50% of them had failed. And uh, you can imagine that uh, I received a lot of emails saying, I told you so. And, but it, it's really not like that. I don't look at that data and say, oh my gosh, this means everything I've done is wrong. What that means is, okay, you could look at it one of two ways. You could look at it that, oh my gosh, 50% failed. Or you could look at it and say, well, we, sa we saved 50% of really, really young patients from going through a very morbid procedure. Now, it all depends on your patients. It all depends on your practice. It all depends on the parents and how they want to approach things. You asked me if I would do it on my, my, my children. Um, my children haven't uh, gotten to that age yet, but I can tell you that I did it, uh, the, the procedure for two of my sister's children. Uh, both of them were, one of them was a 16-year-old soccer player who's now two years out and hasn't had any troubles, and the other one was a 19-year-old rugby player 
and is now nine years out. He was part of that initial cohort, um, and he hasn't had any issues uh, with his knee at all. So while there does seem to be a somewhat higher failure rate in the youngest athletes, you can also turn around and look at all the data from all the reconstructive papers and say that the reconstructions have higher failure rates in younger cutting athletes. So uh, I don't think that, that, that th those data points are incriminations of the procedure. I think that we simply need to refine the indications. And so I can say in my practice, I speak very, very carefully with the parents and tell them that these are the risks involved. And if there's seasons on the line or scholarships, et cetera, and they're in a, a level one cutting sport, then we may lean more towards a reconstructive option. And if not, then we may lean more towards a, a repair option. We had uh, one recent girl who was a rower and uh, she also played soccer. And she told me that she wasn't planning on playing any more soccer, that she was gonna be a rower uh, in college. And so they, even though she didn't have the best tear, they elected to try the repair procedure so that she could get back very quickly and make it to her senior year of rowing, uh, which was only three or four months away. And she, she rowed her senior year and she won the States and everything is great. And now we'll see if she has to have uh, any further surgery down the line. So we bought some time for her. And so there's a, there's a lot of variables involved in the decision-making process for the younger kids. I think w without question, as you get over, over 30, uh, it becomes much less of a question as to whether to do it because there's very little downside risk because most people aren't rushing back to a season, right, uh, like they are in the teenage years. Right. Yeah, that's exactly one of my uh, one of my points, and I'm glad I asked you that so we could tease out some of those details in in the discussion. All right, Greg, I think we have time for one more question here before we wrap up this podcast. I wanted to talk a little bit about postoperative management, and if you could describe for us any modifications you make in the rehab program for your repairs versus your reconstructions. Certainly, the uh, the rehabs just go faster. You know, I mean, as you can imagine, the, the the surgery is dramatically less morbid for the patient. It's really more analogous to a, a meniscal repair. And so, what happened was, in the beginning, I went very slowly. I was very nervous that it was going to pull and loosen up. And and patients were showing back up into the office at six weeks, telling me they just ran a couple miles in the park. And I was I was dumbfounded. I, I couldn't believe that these patients were doing this. And yet what I, what I really realized was that they were doing it because they felt completely normal. And they, they didn't lose their quad. They didn't lose their proprioception. So they were able to protect themselves. And so I had more and more people who, against my advice, were simply going back to doing the things that they love to do. And I wasn't seeing any failures, right? It wasn't, uh, it wasn't until years and years and years into it that the, the first person failed from a traumatic injury at three months, and that was the person who fell off a picnic table at three months. Uh, the only failure I'd had early was like the number six, who was actually the only failure in this cohort of 11, and it was probably a technical error because he was just walking down the stairs and he felt his knee loosen up. And he was like the sixth one I did. And so um, 
I admit that that was uh, likely a problem with the procedure, but I haven't really seen that since we've perfected it. And so I was encouraged by all these folks moving quickly and with uh, working closely with the therapists, uh, we started to use a milestone-based rehab protocol. So when instead of using a time-based rehab protocol, if the patient showed up and they had excellent quad control and they had uh, they showed that they were in good command of their leg, then we would allow them to progress, kind of like the patients were doing uh, against my advice in the beginning. And so over time, we've developed this milestone-based protocol. And so most patients, a good number of the patients, I would say, are uh, have full range of motion within a week or two and full quad control and are uh, starting to jog at about six weeks. Now, some doctors give me a lot of grief about that and say, you're, you know, this is crazy. You're letting them, them go too fast. You know, you're being irresponsible. And I would agree with that if I had seen a lot of failures. But I'm telling you, I follow these patients extremely closely, and I just haven't seen failures when I use this approach. So for the time being, uh, we're uh, using a milestone-based program, and uh, we're working on getting a publication out there on that so we can share it with folks and they can see how we do it. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd be looking forward to uh, reading that. All right, so we're up against the end. Can you maybe summarize for us a couple salient take-home points for our listeners regarding uh, ACL repairs uh, in general? Yeah, look, I think... Um, you know, in the old days, they tried to do this. Uh, the selection wasn't quite so great. The technique wasn't quite so great. And this, this, is not, uh, this is not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that we, using an, a selective approach that only tries to repair certain tears that are likely repairable, so basically only repair the ones that you have a fighting chance to repair, using, you know, modern-day technology, early mobilization, et cetera, and great, uh, great arthroscopic technology that, that we have a much better chance. You know, we just, uh, we just, we haven't published it yet, but we just presented at the recent sports meeting up in Boston, 90 repairs versus 93 reconstructions, all comers, retrospective, a bit of a dirty, uh, dirty study, uh, but we, I really, again, I wanted to, this is, this is what the data that I have right now, and I wanted uh, to kind of show an all-comers look at what the failure rates were, and there really was no difference. It was about 12% f- uh, failure rate for the repairs and about 15% for the recons. Again, that was all-comers. The, the, the 15% seems a little high, admittedly, but we didn't have quite as good a follow-up on that group. And my suspicion is, is that if we had complete follow-up on the recons, it would be a little lower than the repair group, maybe 8 to 10% versus 12% in the repair group. And so that's looking at a good number, almost 200 uh, ACL surgeries, showing that there's not a tremendous difference. But what there really is, is a tremendously decreased morbidity for the patients. And the, and the final the, the benefit, which we don't have time to talk about, is that if the ACL repair loosens up or, or they re-tear it, you can always go back and do the reconstruction as if it was the first time. On the ones that I've had to go back and, and convert to a recon, um, it, was at, it was like I was doing a, a recon, a primary recon. 
there was no increased difficulty. There's no problems with the tunnels, etc. So it's definitely a technique that I think would uh, be beneficial for everyone to have in their toolbox. Sure, I think one of the most important things you touched on is, as I was taught in training by some very smart mentors, is that you know one of the most important things we can do to improve our surgical outcomes happens even before we get in the OR with patient selection. And as as we've had this discussion, I think you've highlighted that nicely about your technique as well as your selection criteria. So thank you for that perspective. Anyhow, uh, thanks again for sharing your thoughts with us today, Greg. Dr. DeFelice's article titled Clinical Outcomes of Arthroscopic Primary Repair of Proximal Anterior Cruciate Ligament Tears are Maintained at Midterm Follow-Up can be found in the April 2018 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Greg, thank you again for joining us. Hey, thanks, Chris, for having me and let me uh, share, share my research with everyone. Appreciate it. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you again for listening. Please join us again next time.